Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm your host, Jacqueline Ganun. Today, I'm talking with Moni Basu, the director of the Narrative Nonfiction MFA program at the University of Georgia. She worked as a reporter for 40 years, covering presidential elections, natural disasters, and the human stories of the war in Iraq. Today, Moni tells me how her international upbringing affects her work, how she learned about the power of storytelling in Iraq, and what she loves about narrative nonfiction. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Hi, Professor Basu. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on today. So you've had a lot of really cool experiences that I wanted to ask about, but I'm going to start at the beginning. So you were born in Kolkata, India, and you grew up straddling two cultures. So how has that upbringing impacted your work? Well, I think that from a very early age, because my family moved back and forth from India to the United States, but also to other countries, we lived in the United Kingdom and Australia, Japan, Lebanon, we traveled a lot. My father had the travel bug. And uh, because of that experience, I think from a very early age, I learned that people are different and that we should be accepting of those differences and tolerant of those differences. And in terms of my journalism, I think my curiosity about people peaked at a very early age because I was exposed to people who were so different than me, right? And I was always full of a thousand and one questions. You know, why do you do things the way you do? It's so different than what we do at home. That's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is, you know, I've spent a lot of my career writing about immigration, identity, race, trauma. And I learned at a very early age what it felt like to be an other. You know, when I went to high school in Tallahassee, Florida, in the 1970s and then college in the 70s and 80s, um, there was no classification for someone like me. You know, it was black, white, or other. And I grew up being an other. Yeah, I even have a t-shirt that says other on it. And I became very interested in, in that concept of othering and what it feels like when your identity has been erased or not acknowledged. And I think that played a big, big part in my journalism. That's so cool that you kind of got to experience all those different cultures, but then coming here, that kind of feeling of like, where do I fit in? And so I noticed you majored in international affairs at Florida State University. So I guess that seems pretty natural of a fit. So when were you first drawn to journalism? Well, you know, when I was a little girl, I I dreamed of be being an Air India flight attendant because I thought they were so beautiful in their perfectly pressed silk saris and traveling around the world and staying at five-star hotels and glamorous cities. Of course, my father didn't really approve of that. And so I went to college thinking that I would join the diplomatic corps or maybe the United Nations. Uh, my master's is in Latin American studies. And ironically, Latin America is the continent that I've reported least from. <laughs> but um, on my 20th birthday, my mother had a massive stroke and uh, that almost killed her. It certainly changed the trajectory of our lives because my mother became both cognitively and physically impaired. 
and I became a caregiver. My father and I were her primary caregivers. And my whole plan, I had planned to do a PhD, all of that went away. I started working for a small community newspaper part-time. Actually, it was very much a paper like the Red and Black. It had once been the student newspaper, but was now independent. And at that time, it was a very feisty newspaper. I started uh, working there knowing nothing about journalism. I had just finished my master's degree and uh, written a 265-page thesis. And the first story I wrote, you know, came back with a big X on it saying you buried the lead massively. <laughs> I didn't know that you had to put everything that was important at the top. So that paper became my journalism school. I learned everything about journalism by doing it there. And once I had written a few stories, I realized, wow, this is really cool. I never even knew, you know, journal. I never considered journalism as a profession, you know, I didn't, it wasn't in my orbit at all. But once I wrote a few stories, I just, I was smitten and I was like, I never turned back. That was it. I decided that journalism was for me. I ended up becoming the editor of that paper. And uh, from there, you know, several other journalism jobs that finally led me to Atlanta in 1990 to the Atlanta Constitution. Yeah, I love that learning by doing rule. I had a similar experience at the Red and Black where I showed up and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing so please teach me and they did and then it's a it's a great way to learn just by being kind of thrown in the deep end a little bit it's a little uncomfortable but I really appreciate that you know what I tell my students is uh, my brother is an astrophysicist and so in his world everything is very exact and there's just one right answer to things my dad was a mathematician in his world two plus two always equal four Always. But in journalism, two plus two doesn't always equal four. You know, it's a very subjective field. And you can sit in a classroom all you want, and I can teach you how to do journalism. But until you do it, until you figure out your own way of reaching four, it's not going to work. Um, classroom instruction is not enough. So like you mentioned, you eventually uh, led you to Atlanta, the Atlanta Constitution, which is now part of the AJC, and you worked at CNN. And so you covered the Iraq war, especially the more human side of it. So what was it like to cover that war? And what are some of the stories you wrote during that time that you maybe still think about? Well, it was in Iraq that I learned the power of storytelling. You know, before that, I was a really good news reporter. I'd covered presidential elections and natural disasters and epidemics. I was very, I'd become a good news reporter and an even better feature reporter. I loved writing features, but I didn't really know what a story story was. And that's what I do now. You know, I teach narrative nonfiction. I'm the director of the narrative nonfiction MFA at, at Grady. Um, in Iraq, it, the story was so daunting. I was one person in this uh, vast land that was blowing up every day. You know, there were a thousand and one stories to tell every day. And at first I tried to tell it from a, you know, above ground lens, you know, to tell the sweeping story of what was happening in Iraq. But those stories 
just were, you know, diluted and watered down and not very different from what everyone else was reporting. And then I started working with an editor who really pushed me to sort of narrow the lens and try to write about just what I was seeing happening in front of me. And so instead of writing about an entire unit of soldiers, I started writing about a soldier who I met and what his experience was like. And the stories got very powerful that way because I was able to do a deep dive with one person. And that person I learned could represent the universal, could represent what all soldiers in Iraq were experiencing or to tell the story of one Iraqi family and their predicaments. They could represent all of Iraq. I mean, I tell my students all the time, I, over the, I've been a journalist now for 40 years. And if you ask me to uh, recount for you the stories I wrote from the presidential election or some of the news stories I wrote, I couldn't tell you what the headlines said or what the lead said. But if you ask me what stories do you, do you, are you most proud of, they are all stories that went deep with one person, including the story of an Iraqi girl named Noor al-Zahra, who was born with severe spina bifida. She doesn't have any feeling below her waist. She couldn't walk. She couldn't go to the bathroom by herself. I've known her since she was three months old when American soldiers raided her house in the middle of the night and discovered the baby. She was brought to Atlanta for life-saving care, made global headlines, CNN, BBC, everyone covered the story. And then everyone forgot about her. And I kept going back to her over the years. Um, the last time I saw her was in 2017 in Uganda when she had to have more surgery. And I recently just spoke with that family again, and I'm hoping I can go back to Iraq to write another episode of her life. Um, that's the other thing in journalism. You know, I think we live in such a fast, furious world. You know, it's, everything is about the moment, right? But I think the most powerful stories actually come when journalists take the time to go back to people you know, to go back to the town that was devastated by the tornado, to go back to the family who lost their home in a wildfire, to go back to someone whose mother died of COVID, to go back to people and write about how they came back from that tragedy, from that moment. You know, that's what I've really learned makes for powerful stories. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And a couple of people who have been on the show have also said the exact same thing where it's all about building those relationships and you know reaching out not only when you need something but just to say hi how are you and i think that's that's really great that you've been visiting her and her family and you know are still in touch so during your reporting uh, while you're embedded with the U.S. Army, you earned the nickname Evil Reporter Chick. So I had to ask about that. What is the story behind that? Well, in 2005, I landed with a unit of the Georgia Army National Guard. And when I got there, everyone told me I had to write a profile of uh, a platoon sergeant there. Um, his name was Patrick Eaton. And um, he had this very gruff exterior. He was the stereotypical platoon sergeant, you know, foul mouthed and acting all tough. And, but uh, his soldiers told me, no, 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 that's all like a, a show. He's really a, quite a different man. 
and I ended up writing a profile of him. He really was a different man, you know, and he listened to Beethoven and read poetry. And he had a uh, Persian rug on the floor and read biographies of Washington and Jefferson. It was not the stereotypical platoon sergeant at all. So after that story came out, you know, at first he was resistant. He said, oh, no, I don't talk to reporters, you know, the media, evil, evil people. I think it was just all a, a kind of a, you know, joke. And when I was leaving that unit one time, I went to the Baghdad airport and everyone was laughing at me and I didn't know what was going on. Why were people looking at me and laughing at me? So I asked somebody, I said, is there something wrong with me? And the soldier said, ma'am, have you looked at your helmet lately? And I said, no, I, you know, I put it on at four in the morning in the darkness and went off to the airport. So I took it off and the helmet band said evil reporter chick on it. And it had been written with affection, of course. He had written it with a Sharpie on my helmet band. That became my name. And I went back to that unit several times. And towards the end of my stay with them, they didn't even say the whole thing. I just became known as ERC. And they even had army tags made up for me that said ERC. And my blog was actually called Evil Reporter Chick. I love that story. And I feel like that's just a good example of like when you are spend so much time with people, even though there is that like journalist source relationship, like if you, you know, are there doing a good job, they can tell you're there for the right reasons and kind of accept you. And <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a matter of winning trust. Um, I was just speaking with some folks that I've been working with on uh, a project on trauma journalism, and we were talking about how reporters win trust with people, especially people who are in vulnerable positions, people who have suffered uh, or are suffering. Doing those kinds of interviews and doing them well, is it takes skill. And especially when you go back to people and you want to get the deeper story, people have to trust you to open up to you. You know, they have to feel like their story is safe with you, that you're not just going to take it and use it for your own benefit, that you truly are interested in telling their story. And so getting access to people, winning their trust, that's something that, you know, doesn't it comes with experience, but it also comes with that added sensitivity of knowing that, you know, people don't have to talk to you. Sometimes I think we as journalists feel like, oh, yeah, we're king of the world, right? I'm here from CNN and you have to talk to me. No, no one has to talk to you, right? I always feel privileged when people say yes to my request for an interview, and I tell my students that all the time, that you should make people feel like their stories matter and be humble, especially in this day and age when there's so much uh, distrust of the media. I think that's become more important than ever. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that, like being grateful for everybody talking to you. I remember especially starting out, I was like, this is crazy that people are like, telling me these especially stories that were a little bit deeper and they had to get more personal I was like I can't believe you just told me that like thank you so much but I think that's a great mindset to have it's like I'm not entitled to whatever interaction I'm you know looking for 
And so like you just mentioned, you teach full-time, now you have students. So you're the director of the MFA Narrative Nonfiction Program at UGA, and you've been teaching narrative nonfiction for years. So what is it about narrative nonfiction that you are drawn to? Well, I think I hinted at it earlier. I think stories are so important to tell because if you really think about it, we as human beings, since the time we you know, appeared on this planet, we have communicated through stories and um, stories are really important to tell. And you know what? The thing is, there's not that many people who tell stories really well. You know, one of the first things in my undergraduate narrative class that we talk about is the difference between a news story. Unfortunately, we've in journalism, we've co-opted that word story to mean any kind of piece that we produce. But, you know, the big difference between uh, a news story or even most feature stories and narrative is that one is informational. One is a collection of information, facts presented to an audience in a logical, thoughtful way that the reporter has put together. And the other is a true story. It has a beginning, a middle, an end. It has a main character. That main character has some challenge, a problem uh, that he, she, they are going to try to resolve. There's a climactic moment in that story. And then there's either resolution or not, but there's an ending to the story. Those are the kinds of stories that I teach my students how to tell, and they're not easy to do in nonfiction because everything has to be true. You know, we are we are journalists after all. We're not fiction writers. So in my classes, I tell my students to borrow heavily from the fiction writer's toolkit, right? We're talking about character and plot and scene and dialogue, voice, but everything has to be true and verified because obviously if you if it's not then it doesn't matter how well you've told the story you've lost all credibility yeah i like i read somewhere that the mfa narrative nonfiction is kind of a bridge between journalism and literature like you were talking about and i think i really like that because i'm a big reader too well you know another word for narrative nonfiction is literary journalism uh, a lot of programs use that term and that is because we like to think of it as literature and journalism. You know, the, the other thing I'll say about storytelling that is so important, and it's more important now than ever before because of this divisive society that we live in, stories evoke empathy. If you can read a story about one person who is might be very different than you, has vastly different life experiences, lives in a place that is totally the opposite of where you live. But if you read a story about them and somewhere along the way, you, you know, you understand what their experience is, then maybe you begin to feel a little bit of empathy for, for their situation. And empathy is the first step in breaking down barriers between people. Yeah, I agree. I love that. So while you teach, you also um, are continuing to write, and you're recently published in The Bitter Southerner and Flamingo Magazine. So how do you balance freelancing and working on these longer-term stories while having a full-time teaching job? Well, I wish there were many more hours in one day. Um, I really miss reporting. I left full-time reporting in 2018 to teach full-time. Before that, I was teaching part-time. 
And I love teaching. I wouldn't give that up for the world, but I also miss reporting. And so I try to do as much as I can. I also think it's really important for um, folks like me who teach journalism to always keep, you know, one toe dipped in the industry because otherwise, I mean, the journalism has changed so much, so rapidly in the last few years. A lot of that has been because of the evolving technology. But I feel like I'm always worried that I'll become a dinosaur to my students and I don't want that. So I feel like as long as I'm somehow connected to the industry, that will be not only good for me because it fulfills my, you know, desire to keep reporting. There's so many important stories that I still want to tell, but I think in the eyes of my students, it makes me a better professor because I have, I know the the current lingo. I know the way things are done still, right? Um, I mean, I've I've moved away from daily journalism, but I, I, I'm very much plugged into the magazine world. And, um, and, you know, I keep in touch with my colleagues in the industry to help out my students get jobs and get internships, but also because I'm always looking for places to land my stories. I think that's great. As a student, I feel like I appreciate that, especially as freelancing becomes more and more common. I think that's really helpful to have people and mentors who can kind of tell you what the deal is. And finally, what advice do you have for aspiring journalists and maybe especially those who want to write more narrative nonfiction or literary journalism? Well, I'll start with the broader question of journalists. I think you always have to stay curious about the world around you and you have to be creative in the way you want to present what you've learned. Um, you have to have a certain amount of critical thinking, you know, to, to, to take in what's happening and to, to analyze it yourself or get help analyzing it, but to question everything, I guess, to be curious and question everything. Um, and then, you know, I guess this is true of all journalists, but especially true of, of folks who want to become narrative writers, you know, there's no shortcuts to becoming a good writer. The two key ingredients to great writing is to read, 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 and then read some more. The more you read, the more you will get command of the language and the more ideas you will have in your head. There's no shortcuts around that. You have to read. And then the other one is you have to write, 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 and write some more because the only way you get better at your writing is by doing it. Those are the two things, um, two key ingredients to becoming a really great writer. Yeah, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me on I've, and asking some great questions, especially about narrative nonfiction, which I could talk about all day long. Thank you again to Moni for joining me on this episode, and thank you for tuning in to The Lead. I'm your host, Jacqueline Ganud. Our executive producer is Charlotte Farnham, and this show is supported by the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on X, formerly Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.